you have your Bibles uh, or phones or tablets or whatever you use, turn to Daniel chapter 4. Um, I want to sort of pick up where we left off uh, a few weeks ago in our series, Ghost Town. And um, uh, since it's been a while, I want to just sort of recap what the whole series has been about. Um, in this series, we've sort of been discussing the uh, issue of idolatry. <clears throat> and I know most of us don't consider ourselves guilty of uh, idolatry because we sort of relegated the whole concept to something that uh, resembles what went on in the Old Testament, right? But just because we don't bow down and worship inanimate objects doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it in our hearts. The reality is that when you seek other things to give you what only God can give you, then you've set up idols in your heart. Uh, the definition that we have been working from throughout this series is that an idol is anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. For example, you have relationships with people, right? But when you depend on another human being to give you what only God can and should give you, then you set them up as an idol in your heart. Like if your security is wrapped up in, an, in another person, our security should come from God, not that person. If, you've set, if your security comes from that person, you set them up as an idol in your heart. If your worth as a human being is wrapped up in the approval of that person, you have set them up as an idol in your heart. That's what idolatry looks like in our culture. You know, none of us are taking a block of wood or a piece of stone and carving some image into it and then bowing down and worshiping it, right? But when we seek other things to give us what only God can give us, then not only are we just as guilty as, as ancient cultures of idolatry, in the end, we end up with a hollow, empty soul when that thing eventually fails us. Your identity needs to come from God. It can't come from in any other person or any other thing that will eventually fail you. Your self-worth, your security, your purpose, those are things that need to come from God. Your, your love and acceptance and approval all need to come from your Heavenly Father. And you can try to, to seek other things to have those needs fulfilled elsewhere, and for a while it might even seem like it's working that you're getting those, your, those needs fulfilled through that thing. But when that relationship with an imperfect human being fails you, what are you left with? You're left hollow and empty. When the success and achievement that you use to fulfill your need for purpose, identity, self-worth, and security eventually goes away, what are you left with? You're left with a ghost town. Your soul is hollow and empty. So that's what we've been talking about. And over the past few weeks, we addressed some of the things that we have a tendency to sort of set up as idols in our hearts. But today I want to address something that may have left you feeling hollow and empty because a couple of weeks ago, um, this thing had failed you miserably. And I'm talking about our political system the idol of our politics. 
And I'm not here to show support for any of the people who ran for president. Honestly, I was kind of rooting for Zoltan, right? Oh, Zoltan Isdan. Anybody hear him? Whew. Man, that dude is weird. Um, <laughs> no, in fact, all throughout this election cycle, I kept thinking, seriously? These are the best people our country has to offer? And I know, you know, that some of you are um, devastated by the outcome of the election and are already researching the feasibility of moving to another country. Um, others of you are excited about the outcome and are more hopeful than ever. And then there are others who are just kind of indifferent about the results of the, the election because you didn't like either of the front-running candidates, but now you find yourself kind of fearful about the future. And again, I don't think any of us would think or admit that we've set up um, a political candidate or even a political party as an idol in our heart. But when we look to our politics to make us feel secure, then that's exactly what we've done. Our security should only come from God. When we look to a political leader or party to make us feel secure, then we've set them up as an idol in our heart. Why? Because our sense of security needs to come from one place, our Heavenly Father. But unfortunately, many of us are looking to other things to give us the security that honestly only God can give us. It was about 6 p.m. the night uh, on election night. Results were just starting to trickle in from the East Coast. And my wife got the call from her doctor that the blood test came in from the previous day telling her that she needed to get to the ER right away. And uh, when we got to the hospital, we were, um, we were, we were pleased to find that the, the waiting room was empty and that it wasn't busy, right? And we even commented to the triage nurse on how slow they were. And she said, oh, we're going to be busy. By the time the, the night's over, after the results come in, we will be packed with people having chest pains and anxiety attacks. <laughs> that's crazy, right? I mean, it's really sad, but it tells us something about our culture that we're looking to the wrong things to give us the security that only God can give us. And as believers, it's really easy to get sort of sucked into that flow of culture. But God encourages us to not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? And part of that renewing transformation is trusting in God's sovereignty, even in our governmental leaders. And there's an amazing story here in Daniel 4 that shows us how we can do exactly that. Before we get to the story, though, let me give you some background. This story takes place at about 500 B.C., during the captivity of Judah, Judah, if you remember, was one part of the kingdom of, or the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, but God had warned Judah that if they did not obey his commands, then he was going to judge them by allowing foreigners to invade their land, take, destroy the nation, and cart people off into captivity for 70 years. 
Well, they did not listen to God's warnings. And sure enough, the Babylonians invade, destroy the temple, tear down the wall around Jerusalem, and they cart a whole bunch of people off back to Babylon. Now, the king of Babylon was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a brilliant king. And one of the things that he did that set him apart from other ancient kings is that when he invaded another nation, instead of just killing all the people off, he would find the smartest and most talented people to take back with him to his kingdom. See, what made him such a brilliant king is that he surrounded himself with the best and brightest of people, regardless of their nationality. And, and he would even allow foreigners that he took captive from other nations to hold places of power, to hold of places of office. And this is a great leadership principle because it was more important to him to be surrounded by the smartest people and those with greater insight than to, be, than to just surround himself by his own people. So you could be from a nation far, far away, but if you were smart, if you were really smart and talented, you could actually be brought to Babylon as a slave. And once your talent and ability was recognized, you could rise to a place of power in the kingdom. Consequently, Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by the best and brightest in the known world. And that's what made him such a powerful king. So when he invaded Judah, he again brought the best and brightest into his kingdom. And four of the names of those he brought, many of us recognize. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were trained in the ways of the Babylonian kingdom, and over time, because of God's faithfulness, they became advisors to the most powerful king at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar. So, Things seem to be going really well for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's very prosperous, enjoying his success. But one night, he has a very troubling dream. And that's where our story begins in Daniel chapter 4. And the cool thing is that this story is actually told to us by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Okay? So let's pick up Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. To the peoples, nations, and men of every language... Who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my ple pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream. That made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them to dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is, call, he is called Belpetel. Belshazzar, I, I probably messed it up, um, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy God is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. 
Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From, from it, every creature was fed. In the vision I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass, for, pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know, and this is the main thrust of this passage, so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant food, fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places as branches for the birds of the air, you... O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of he <coughs> heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you 
when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that when your pros- that it may be then that your prosperity will continue. <clears throat> All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. In this moment, King Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with one of the most powerful leadership principles. That leadership of any type is a stewardship. And because it is a stewardship, that means two things. First, it is a temporary appointment. Whether that means the office you hold has term limits, much like our government does, or whether that means you don't get to live forever and you're going to die one day and someone takes that leadership place behind you. It is a temporary appointment and you are accountable to God for it. Any type of leadership, whether it's family, business, government, is a stewardship, which means it's temporary, and you are accountable to God for the leadership he gave you. Men and women who are in places of leadership are there because God has enabled, empowered, and allowed them to hold those positions of leadership. Whether it is the President of the United States the CEO of your company, or jerky, jerk-faced jerkerson who got the promotion when you should have gotten it. (laughs) They are accountable to God because he gave it to them. And it is temporary because he can take it away. And in this story, God takes away Nebuchadnezzar's leadership so that, as verse 17 stated, that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wants. The story continues, verse 32. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you, pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. 
His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At, the same t- at that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The point of this whole story is made abundantly clear because it is repeated three times, verse 17, 25, and 32, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Think about that. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes. And to say that God is sovereign simply means that God rules and that he is in control. So God rules and is in control over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to whomever he wishes. Do you believe that? With Donald Trump winning the presidency, do you believe God gave him that position of leadership? Do you believe that God gave the leadership of our country to whom he wished? For those who are happy about the results of the election, what if Hillary Clinton had won? Would you still believe that God gave her the, that position of leadership? You know, I don't, I don't know what the next four years are going to hold for our country, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of changes. Some people think the changes will be good. Some people think the changes are going to be bad. If the changes are good, then it would be really easy to think, okay, yeah, maybe Trump was God's provision for our country. But if the changes are bad, will you still believe that God gave him that office? Anybody remember the movie Red Dawn? It was remade in 2012, but the original version came out in 1984. And it was about a group of teenagers fight for survival when our country, the mainland, the the United States, uh, was invaded by a foreign army. In the 1984 version, we were still kind of in the Cold War, and it was the Russians who invaded. Uh, In the 2012 version, it was the North Koreans. (laughs) Got to keep it relevant, right? Um, But I remember when that movie first came out in 1984, and it freaked so many people out. I mean, outside of, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor during World War II, the last time a war was fought on U.S. soil was the Civil War back in the 1860s. That's a long time, right? 
And the idea that we could be invaded is terrifying. And there are a lot of people who fear that Donald Trump could lead this country into war. I mean, he's not exactly the most diplomatic person, is he? But if that happens, if our country is led into war, is God any less sovereign over the kingdoms of men? See, it's very easy for us as Christians living in a culture of abundance, comfort, and convenience to really sort of freak out when that abundance, comfort, and convenience is threatened. But God never promised us a life of abundance, comfort, and convenience, did he? What if things get so bad in this country that our culture turns hostile towards Christianity and we lose our religious freedoms? Will God be any less sovereign over the kingdoms of men? See, what a lot of us don't realize is that Christianity flourishes when it's persecuted. And it really doesn't do so well in peace and prosperity. Think about it. The church started in the first century under intense persecution. Eleven guys were given the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, to go out and proclaim this message everywhere. And as soon as they started doing that, they were, they were arrested and told by the government officials under the threat of death to never speak the name of Jesus again. And what did they say? It was like, nah, we think we'll obey God rather than you. I mean, the spread of the Christian church in its earliest centuries is one of the most amazing phenomena in all human history. For the first 300 years, the, the Christian church was classified as an illegal, depraved religion. Wave after wave of persecution was unleashed to squash it. At least two of the persecutions were empire-wide and intended to destroy it. And yet, the church flourished and grew out of control. We even have an example of that in our, in our own modern time. In the late 1950s, China, under the leadership of Mao Zedong, launched its cultural revolution with the, which included the systemic purge of all religion from their society. At that time, there was an estimated 2 million Christians, all of which were driven underground because it was illegal to hold a church service. More than 20 years later, after Mao Zedong's death, Christian missionaries were allowed back into the country. And they expected to find virtually no Christians left. Um, the church just decimated, right? But what they discovered was that in just a little over 20 years, 2 million Christians turned into 30 or 60. 2 million Christians turned into 60 million Christians. How did that happen? I mean, it, it defies all logic that under such persecution, it would grow, what, 
3,000%? That's amazing. The church had nothing, and yet it thrived. Because Christianity thrives and flourishes under persecution. But in our time, and in our culture of abundance, comfort, and convenience, the church is in decline. More churches than ever are, clo- are permanently closing their doors. And every single year, 1% or the number of people who claim to be Christian drops by 1%. And one of the main reasons that experts point to for these alarming statistics is that prosperity and affluence has distracted people not only from just attending church, but from even being identified as Christian. Which isn't really surprising because Jesus told us that would happen, right? In the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the story of a man who sows seed and it lands on different types of soil and one of the soil was, a th- was thorny ground. And Jesus explained that the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. Now what if God wanted to revive the church in the U.S., to revive Christianity? But the only way for that to happen would be through persecution. Much like what China went through in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Would you trust God in his sovereignty if a horrible persecution took place as a result of someone rising to power? Would you still believe that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he wishes? I mean, if you believe that God is behind the enormous growth that took place in China, you have to believe that he put Mao Zedong in power, that he gave him that position of leadership. And maybe what our country needs is a persecution to turn the hearts of its people back to him. Now, I'm sorry if I'm freaking some of you out. I am not a prophet, okay, and I'm not saying any of these things are going to happen. I mean, maybe God gave us Donald Trump to give us four more years of prosperous growth. Who knows? But what if? What if what we're seeing unfold in current events is just the beginning of the end? I mean, have you read the book of Revelation? The end is awesome, right? But it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. And if that, if God is steering the world in that direction, then he's putting people in place to make that happen. Remember, God was using King Nebuchadnezzar when he invaded Judah. And that's why I love Daniel so much. Because even though his country was invaded and his home destroyed, even though he was carted off to live in a pagan land with ungodly people and his talents used 
for the king's purposes, and his name was changed to some weird name. He never lost his faith in God. Even when being faced with being eaten alive by a pack of lions, a group of lions, what are they called? Pride? I don't know. Even under the threat of being eaten alive, he never denied God. He never stopped trusting in him. The point is this. Where are you seeking your sense of security? If you're looking anywhere other than your Heavenly Father to make you feel secure, then you're going to feel very insecure and fearful when that thing fails you. And I promise it will fail you. The only place we can find the security we need is from our Heavenly Father. And we never have to worry about him failing us. Even if we're faced with severe persecution and face the threat of death for our faith in Jesus, then we can say, can you put that last slide back up? Then we can say, as the writer of Hebrews said, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? The only way we can say that is if every ounce of our security is placed in God. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this story in Daniel 4. I thank you, God, for these people who lived that life and for even King Nebuchadnezzar, God, that you used. Um, I, I thank you, God, that we have these stories to look back on so that we can make the necessary adjustments in our heart and turn our heart back to you, God, so that we don't make the mistake of setting up idols in our hearts by looking to other things to give us what only you can give us, God. God, our trust has to be in you. We have to look to you to find everything our soul longs for and that our soul desperately needs. It's so easy, God, to fall into the trap, the trappings of our culture and, the, and even the flow of our culture and, and, and try to seek other things to give us those things we need like security. God, you never promised that the things we enjoy so much and try to hang on to with every ounce of our being, comfort and convenience and prosperity and abundance, you never promised that we would have those. God, the people who started the church in the first century lost everything lost their lives proclaiming you and sharing the good news of Jesus. And they were exactly where you wanted them. 
God, help us to let go of the things of this life. Find our hope, our peace, and our security in you. Help us to trust you above all else. We thank you, God, for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 